Isaiah chapter 22, as we take a look at a prophecy concerning the true house of David. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You hew a tomb on the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. And He is about to grasp you firmly, roll you tightly like a ball, to be cast into a vast country, and there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will be, you shame of your master's house. I will depose you from your office. I will put you down from your station. And then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, or Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, and all the least of vessels and bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Father, what a marvelous, marvelous prophecy. And we hear in the words of Isaiah, Lord, the poetic. We hear the beautiful language and the way he, he turns a phrase as we've seen so many times now. Isaiah truly is a wordsmith, but far more than that. Holy Spirit, you, you use this prophet to speak amazing things to us. And we recognize this is not just the stuff of history long past. It is the stuff of prophecy even yet to be fulfilled. And that is why as we open up Your Word, we we do so with anticipation because we know every time we take a look at the pages of Scripture, Holy Spirit, You're going to speak and teach us new things and increase our faith and, and build our strength. And we ask for all those things this morning. But most of all, we just praise You and thank You for Your grace, Lord Jesus, for all that You've done. And we pray that we might one day be found faithful when You come in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is an interesting one. It's a tale of two stewards. A tale of two stewards, Shebna and Eliakim. Both of these men are well-positioned Both of them are mentioned in other places of Scripture. They're prominent political players in the cabinet of King Hezekiah over the kingdom of Judah. Now, before we dive in, I'm going to ask a question. I really wondered, this is an interesting prophecy. It's a very powerful one, very meaningful one. But what is it doing here? In the 66 chapters of Isaiah, why is it placed where it's placed? You know what we've been looking at here from chapter 13 through 23, 24, right in there. We've been looking at what some have called the book of burdens. Several burdens, one after another, dealing with dire warnings against nations 
surrounding Israel, surrounding Judah. We've seen dire warnings against Babylon and Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus. We've seen it against Ethiopia or a land to the west. We've seen warnings to Egypt, warnings to Idumea or Edom. Even a warning to Jerusalem. Why, in the midst of this, do we have a warning for this one guy? In chapter 22... We have an oracle against the Valley of Vision. We looked at that on Wednesday night. The Valley of Vision, if you're curious what that is, beginning of chapter 22, it's Jerusalem. Spoken of as the Valley of Vision. There's going to be another burden in this list of burdens against these nations. It'll be against the nation of Tyre in chapter 23. I think that's appropriate because by the time you get to that point in the book of burdens, you tire of the burdens. So you're ready to move on. But all these big burdens against massive nations, against tribal elements, against even the city of Jerusalem, and then as if to bring it all to a mighty head, chapter 24 is a global judgment against the entire world. The book of burdens, big burdens, national warnings, and here toward the end, the Lord bothers to mess with two stewards. Out of all this might... Out of all the splendor of kings and the glory of man that deserves dire warning from the Father, we have Shebna and Eliakim. Why, Lord? I don't want to second-guess God and His positioning of things. But I can tell you this much. I know this to be true. Everyone matters to God. Everyone matters to God. You know, when we are looking at mighty nations and things happening all across the world, in massive world events, don't forget that every single individual person matters to God. And I go so far as to say believers and non-believers alike. Everyone matters. He has concern for every person. Don't miss how vast and how epic the implications of John 3.16 truly are. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now that's epic. The world. The word there in the Greek is cosmos. God so loved the cosmos. Everything. That He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, it's very personal, one individual, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's amazing. I can understand the glory and grandeur of God and Him looking out at the the earth and saying, I'm going to judge the nations. I'm going to look at the earth. I'm going to look over all the universe. But now we pinpoint down to just Shebna, Eliakim. Individuals in the whole entire span of history, why are they here? Because they matter to God. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Among whom, Paul says, I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Again, you know 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And John takes it right out to the furthest extreme. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. 
Jesus is himself the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Everyone matters. Now, that's not universal salvation. But it is universal invitation. It's not that the whole world will be saved. It's that the whole world could be saved if each person would simply receive Jesus as Lord. It's that simple. And God makes that makes it that accessible for all people. So let me be clear. While I do not reject the sovereignty of Almighty God to do whatever He wants with whomever He wants, I unequivocally reject that some are predestined to heaven while some are predestined to hell. That is an unbiblical perspective. And we need to understand that. God declares in both word and example that everyone matters. That Christ died for every person. And all every person has to do to be saved for eternity is believe in Jesus. The difference between those who would go to heaven and those who would go to hell. And yes, there is a heaven. And yes, there is a hell. The only difference is the decision the individual makes. Do you decide for Christ? Do you believe in Him? Well, someone might say, what about Pharaoh? What about Judas? What about Antichrist? These guys have a choice. Will Antichrist have a choice? I'm going to come back to Judas and Antichrist in a few minutes this morning. But God's dealings with Pharaoh set a pattern that I think we need to recognize. That's very interesting. Perhaps you've heard, many of you have heard, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And those who would believe in what they would call election or predestination would say, Pharaoh had no choice. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it does say that in Scripture. Fourteen times in the book of Exodus, and I can give you the verses, in fact I will. Exodus chapter 7, verses 13, 14, and 22. Exodus chapter 8, verses 15, 19, and 32. And Exodus chapter 9, verse 7. And Exodus chapter 9, verse 12. And Exodus chapter 10, verse 1, 20, and 27. And finally, Exodus 11, verse 10, 14, verse 4, and 14, verse 8. Fourteen times, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Note this. The first seven times the Bible tells us, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The second seven times, we're told God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What do we learn from this? That God honors the path that we choose. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Seven times, which is, by the way, a complete number in the Bible. And the Lord comes along and says, so you set your feet on this path. This is the direction you want to go. Then I will honor that. Well, then does he take away Pharaoh's choice? No, Pharaoh made his choice. You know, that's, side note, that's like in the whole pro-choice movement. That's like saying, if you don't allow a woman to get an abortion, you've taken away her choice. No, she had a choice. And I understand, except in the case of rape and incest, which is a very, very slim number, and that's a completely different conversation, although we're still talking about life. Talk about that another time, perhaps. But we all have choice. You didn't have to get in bed with that young man. You could have chosen otherwise. You make a choice. We all make choices. See, the problem is we don't like the outcome of a choice we made 20 years ago that's just hitting us now. 
We don't realize the chain reaction sometimes of our earlier choices. When we look back, and those of you who have been around a little while look back, and you can think about that young person that you were and and just how you'd like to slap them upside the head for the choices they made that affect you today. (laughs) How dare they? (laughs) But that's the key issue here. God honors the path we choose. He is a respecter of the heart. If you want to reject God, though He does not want you to, He will respect that choice. What are you saying? I'm saying that God, though completely sovereign, gave up a little of His sovereignty that we might have the freedom to choose Him or reject Him. It's your choice. And we need to understand that as as we go forward even in our Bible study this morning. We are not automatons. We have not been pre-programmed for salvation or for damnation. And I can go all the way back to the planting of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Why did God do that? Choice. He didn't have to put the tree there. If he hadn't put the tree there, Adam and Eve never would have had a choice, never would have sinned, and would still be in the garden to this very day. But God put the tree there that there would be a choice. And he gave them a choice in saying, you can eat anything you want of all the trees and vegetables and plants. Very healthy. Don't eat that one tree. One law, one rule, one choice. And they chose to rebel. Everyone matters to the Lord. Everyone matters to the Lord. So in the midst of the sea of nations, two men are called out. Two men are named by the Lord. Let's consider these two guys. First, Shebna. Shebna. A couple of things to note about Shebna. Verse 15 tells us, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. Some things to note. First of all, note his name. Shebna is not a Hebrew name. Shebna is an Aramaic name. And that alone gives us indication that Shebna was a foreigner originally. And he was not born of the line or tribe of Judah or of the people of Israel, that he is an outsider. You could say an Aramaic outsider who became a Jerusalem insider. He'd be perfect to be running for election right now, you know. He's an insider. Well, that's exactly what Shebna, who he was. His name in Aramaic means to grow or to be vigorous. And truly, Shebna was vigorously seeking self-advancement. Vigorously seeking promotion for himself. Where do you see that? I'll show you in a minute. But listen. Shebna sought all of this for himself. Sought the making of his own name. And there is no place for that in the church of Jesus Christ. There is no place for making a name for yourself or myself. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In Mark 9.35, we're told, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve to him and said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Shebna comes from the outside. He comes into Judah and he works his way up the political ladder to a high position of steward of the house. Gang, this would be the equivalent of prime minister, just under the king. You have Hezekiah, and then you've got the steward. 
And Shebna, this, this chamberlain of the kingdom of Judah, was all about himself. He was all about carving out a name for himself. Look at verse 16. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock. This is a grave situation. (laughs) He wanted to stand headstone and shoulders above everyone else. Am I being too cryptic for some of you? (laughs) Sorry, I know that was one too many. (laughs) Okay, so what's the deal with the tomb here? Why is he pointing out the tomb? You have hewn out your name in the rock, a tomb for yourself. We would think, well, what's the big deal there? It was a big deal. It was a huge deal for the people of Israel. Because it was a status symbol. His whole thing was having this massive memorial headstone set up for himself among in the height. Notice that it says, you who hew a tomb on the height. And the point is that this is a, a high place of, of memorial, of tombs, of kings, of the aristocracy. And all this goes to Shebna's motives. I want to leave a name. I want to make a name for myself, both now and when I'm gone. I want people to know, yeah, I got, I got one of those you know, nice new tombs. I'm having the carving done right now, a little engraving, you know. It was all about his name. And then when he would be gone, after he'd die, he would know his resting place would be glorious. And so his motives and his attitudes become clear. And the Lord is calling him out on this. I want a name for myself now and when I'm gone. My friends, there is only one name given among men by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus. There is only one name that matters. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter said it. It is the name of Jesus Christ. His name alone. There's only one legacy worth leaving on the earth, and that is the legacy of Christ. And a lot of talk is done, even in our culture, about legacy. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? Especially as we we get a little bit older and we look at growing children and we think, what's my legacy going to be? What am I going to leave to the kids? If you leave anything, leave Jesus. Leave the name of Jesus. Leave faith in Christ. Pass that along. Well, my kids are already grown out of the house. Then serve in children's ministry and leave a legacy of Jesus Christ. And let's raise up the next generation believing in Jesus if indeed there is a next generation. Jesus, by comparison to Shebna, had no tomb of his own. Shebna's getting the best tomb in the city. Jesus didn't. He had to borrow one for the weekend. (laughs) And you know what's amazing? As a crucified man, he should have been tossed out. His body should have been pulled off the cross and thrown into a pauper's grave with all the criminals. That's how they buried criminals who were crucified. But you know what Isaiah says? Isaiah 53 verse 9, His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. What does that mean? It means that rather than having Jesus' body tossed out, God saw to it that Jesus' body was remarkably laid in the unused tomb of a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea. So that's just one of the many prophecies in Isaiah fulfilled perfectly by Jesus. And by the way, let me just point out, he would have had no control over that. He couldn't have made that happen. He was dead, right? He was on the cross. He couldn't have orchestrated that whole thing. And yet he was laying in the tomb 
of a rich man. He had no tomb of his own. He left no engravings, no carvings, no monuments to himself. One of the blessings of traveling in Israel is you begin to recognize for the wonder of just being there and and, and thinking, you know, my feet are on the same ground that Jesus walked. And and, and he was on the Sea of Galilee and and on, on, on and on you go. You know what? You won't find a single monument to Jesus. It's not a single thing there. There's a, a carving, a rock carving that has Pontius Pilate's name on it. You can see that. There's a stone archway that you're pretty sure Abraham entered that city. There are relics. There are places. There are carvings. There are things left, found in the rock, dug up. Not a single name of Jesus in carving. And someone would say, well, see, that just proves that he wasn't there. No, 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 no. Everything proves he was there. But he didn't leave a name in stone. Because the Lord would much rather inscribe his name on the heart. In faith. Which is what he's called us to. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, I, I fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith in the future that is laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So don't seek to leave a name for yourself here. In fact, live your life to be forgotten here and remembered there. Remembered by Jesus, known by Him. Not like Shebna. Shebna wanted to make a name for himself, and secondly, it all led to his shame. Sheba's name and Sheba's shame. Verse 17. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He's about to grasp you firmly, roll you tightly like a ball. I love the, the language here. To be cast in a vast, into a vast country, probably Assyria. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will be, you shame of your master's house. Splendid chariots? Yeah, it's, it's thought that Sheba rode his chariot, had a glorious, beautiful, glittering chariot that he would ride around Jerusalem. The steward's coming. <laughs> Chamberlain, here I am, Prime Minister. Nice bow down. You got it. Have you seen my tomb? Right on. This guy riding around. <laughs> says, you shame of your master's house, I will depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station. You shame of your master's house. This is a continuing theme with Isaiah. The Lord says often through Isaiah, it's those who are prideful who will fall. And I will lift up the humble. But in this case, I, it's, I, I shudder at the words, you shame of your master's house. Who wants to hear that? In our world, and perhaps with some of you, many have grown up feeling like they were ashamed to their parents, either because of choices they made or perhaps their parenting was awful and they just felt like there was never that honor given from father or mother to son or to daughter. We have an opportunity to hear the Father not say, you shame, but to hear Jesus say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And let me tell you something. If you happen to be one of those who had a hard upbringing and never really heard affection from a parent or love from a parent or or care or concern, listen to Jesus. I mean, if there's anything worth living for, it's living to hear Him say, Well done. And He will. I'm proud of you, son. I am so pleased with you, daughter. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't let parenting on earth 
drag you down. Well, I, but I never heard it growing up. You can hear it. In fact, I believe if you walk with Jesus, you can hear it right now. Well done. I'm proud of you. Well, Shebna missed the boat, missed the chariot. And we don't exactly know how this played out historically. All we really have is the passage and a couple other mentions of his name, but we don't know. Well, was he dragged off to Assyria? Probably. It was prophesied he would be. At some point, probably was dragged off and, and died there. We don't know exactly how it played out. But we do know that by Isaiah chapter 36, verse 3, he had been demoted. Because now, instead of being the steward in charge of the house, by chapter 36, Isaiah mentions that he's a scribe. So Shebna has just been pulled down. He has been deposed from his office. But according again to this prophecy, he would die in obscurity in a foreign land. And his tomb would be forgotten. That's another thing you won't see if you travel to Israel. You will not see the tomb of Shebna. It doesn't exist. I thought about Shebna and I realized this description reminds me of someone else. There was another steward uh, who, who kept charge of his master's finances who sought his own advancement, who also would be hurled headlong, Judas. Acts chapter 1 verse 18 tells us Judas acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. It's in your Bible. Did Judas have a choice? Or was he elected to the office of betrayer by God? We need a betrayer. This guy looks wormy. Let's use him. Let's force his hand. As I mentioned with with Pharaoh, God is a respecter of the heart. I want to show you something with Judas. Turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 13. A little rabbit trail, but I think it's valuable to see. John chapter 13. Understanding as you turn here, Judas didn't do anything he didn't want to do. He didn't do anything that he didn't choose to do. John chapter 13, verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So the devil made him do it. Right? I mean, obviously, the devil put this into his heart. He had no choice. Well, we already know the bent of his heart. And that's the thing that sometimes people miss. Back in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knew when he chose Judas. Oh, so, so Jesus forced Judas to make the choice. No, Jesus knew what he would do. It's completely different knowing what someone is doing or is going to do and forcing them to do that. I know if I leave a bowl of candy on the counter and leave David and Naomi to their own devices, I know that candy is going to get all that up. (laughs) But I don't force them to do it. Jesus knew the heart of Judas. Chose him anyway. Oh, okay, but chose him to betray? No. No. No, I believe Jesus chose Judas to give him a chance not to be the betrayer. Completely different reason for calling this man to be a disciple. We need a betrayer. No, I want to save his life. Father, give me three years with him. Maybe that will change his mind. John chapter 12, verse 6, John tells us Judas was a thief. 
And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So across three years of ministry, Judas was taking money out of the tithes and offerings given to Jesus. Such is the heart of Judas. But go back to John 13. Look at verse 21. Skip down. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. See, that's how good Judas was. No one knew. No one had any idea. No one said, oh, it's got to be Judas. (laughs) No one knew. And they're looking around and they're struggling to understand this. Down to verse 26, Jesus answered, He said, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Why didn't everybody know right then and there that Judas was the betrayer? I mean, Jesus said as much. Okay, I'm going to dip the morsel and the one I hand it to is going to be the one who betrays me. He dips, he hands it to Judas, and nobody had a clue that Judas was the betrayer. Why? Because they were watching what Jesus was doing. They didn't hear what he was saying. What was he doing? In the Passover meal, gang, this is a very tender moment. Because for the master of the meal, the leader, the the most honored position in the meal, which was Jesus... For him to take and dip the morsel and give it to someone was a sign of respect and honor. In fact, it's what you would do for your closest friend in the room. You dip the morsel and hand it to your friend. He he should have dipped the morsel and handed it to John, you know, who was leaning right up against him. Or dipped the morsel and perhaps handed it to Peter to show a little respect to Peter. Or perhaps James, or maybe even Andrew, one of the guys who were in the, the in the inner circle. You know, there was the twelve, but there was also the three or four who were closest to Jesus, even out of the twelve. And he didn't hand it to any of them. He handed it to Judas. And the apostles didn't hear what he said. The apostles watched what he did. It must have been saying, wow. He just, he just really honored Judas there. Did you see that? And what was going on, I believe, in that moment is Jesus looked Judas in the eye and in essence was saying, will you be my friend? This is your moment. You have a choice to make. If you take this, if you will be my friend, Judas. And we know what happened. Verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Judas became in that moment Satan-possessed. Not demon-possessed. Satan-possessed. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The apostles figured, oh, that means he's sending Judas off to get more food for the meal or something. He sent him out for a little little final business. They had no idea. Not a clue. Down in verse 30, it tells, tells us after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately and it was night. The way John writes, it's amazing. And it was night time, but it was also night in the heart of Judas. He had made his choice. He chose to betray Jesus. Satan simply entered the heart already bent on destruction. Acts chapter 1, Peter later will say, verse 25, Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Judas made that call. And Judas, like Shebna, here's the issue, self-advancement. But Judas was also a precursor of another seeker of self-advancement. 
John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus had this to say about Judas. He said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That's Judas. Of the twelve apostles, all eleven are still alive. Not one will perish, he's saying, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes, Let no one in any way deceive you. For the end will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. Same phrase, same name, and he's talking about Antichrist. Judas was called the son of perdition. Antichrist is called the son of perdition. What's the connection? Same spirit, same motivator. Satan enters the heart of Judas. Satan will, midway through the tribulation, enter into the heart of Antichrist, take over, and try to complete his task. What are you saying with this, Rick? I'm saying the direction of the feet follow the direction of the heart. And self-advancement and self-promotion gang are anti-Jesus. Self-advancement. I'm not saying don't do your best in your job. I'm not saying don't put your best foot forward or try your hardest. But don't do it for the purpose of self-advancement. Do it for the purpose of advancing Jesus. Why is that guy such a hard worker at the plant? He's a Christian. I know that because every time I ask him what's going on in his life, he's talking about Jesus. Why can I just count on her to always be there taking care of everything? She's such an amazing servant. Yeah, because of Jesus. Jesus' advancement, not self-advancement. Self-advancement will kill you every time, just as it did Whitney Houston. What a tragedy. 48 years old. Found dead yesterday, if you hadn't heard. And, and, and I, you know, drowned in a bathtub. I, I'm sure more will come out about what was going on. And I don't mean to judge at all. I, I have poked fun in the past at... Whitney Houston's song, The Greatest Love of All, you know, is to learn to love yourself. And my daughter, Hannah, she texted me. She said, did you hear that Whitney Houston had died? And, and I said, yeah, I just, I just heard that and texted. But we were texting back and forth. And I told Hannah, you know, the problem is we were not made to be worshipped. Being worshipped messes us up because we were made to worship. And that is what I believe killed her more than anything else. Self-advancement, self-promotion, it will kill you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. There's a lot of Antichrists? Yeah. Did you know that? From this we know that it's the last hour. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. So you don't have to be Antichrist with a capital A, you know, with your own little t-shirt that says, Hello, my name is Antichrist. You don't have to be him. You can be little Antichrist simply by rejecting Jesus and being anti-Christ. And self-advancement is the way to head down that road, as we see with Shebna. But the opposite is also true. To be Christ-like is to be a bondservant in the house of the Master. To look at the title of steward and not say, oh yeah, I'm the Lord High Chamberlain. I'm the Prime Minister. I'm in the upper echelon of the faith. I'm a known entity on this earth. No, instead, to be an unknown. To be called to the position by the Lord because you happen to be humble of heart like Eliakim. 
Eliakim, the second steward. And, and he really is the person of interest to me. He comes in to replace the authority of Shebna, and his part in the tale is the exact opposite. Look at verse 20. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him, and I will entrust him with your authority or rule... And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Through Isaiah, the Lord says, still talking to Shebna, he says, I'm going to remove your authority and I'm going to put it on the shoulders of Eliakim. That's really interesting. Who is in authority in the world today? Some said Satan, some said Obama. No, it's it's Satan. John chapter 12, verse 31 says, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And yes, the ruler of the world is Satan. And he has been trying to make a name for himself since the very beginning, since since before creation, which is why he was cast down. And we recognize, and I believe inherent in this prophecy is this truth, that God will remove him from his position of authority, and he will hand his authority over to another, over to Jesus Christ himself, who we know said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Rick, you're saying that Eliakim is a picture of Jesus? Exactly. Exactly. Watch this, verse 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. Sound familiar? How do you know that Eliakim is a prophetic picture of Jesus? The key is the key. The key is the key. Keep your finger there and go over to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 17. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelations of things happening. It is about Jesus. It is to focus on Jesus. And John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I got the keys. Want the keys? I got the keys. You want to not worry about death? I got the keys. You want to avoid imprisonment? I got the keys. The keys are the key. By the way, these keys are both for letting out and for locking up. The keys of death and Hades are keys of liberation and they are keys of incarceration. Hold that thought. Go over to chapter 3, verse 7. Revelation 3.7 Jesus, speaking here, says again, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And who is that but Jesus Himself? So now, looking back in Isaiah 22, 
God says, I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. In Jesus' marvelous self-description in Revelation chapter 3, he reveals that Eliakim was a type or a representation of himself, of Jesus. Okay? So, back to Isaiah. Watch this. Follow it through. He says, I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. The key of the house of David is the authority to rule. Now, it was a literal key. Okay, the steward of the house, the, the chamberlain, would have the keys to the city of Jerusalem. He would have the keys to the palace, the keys to all the important places. And he would hold those keys. But not only were they literal keys, they were symbolic keys in that if you had that key, the key of the house of David, you had all the authority. You were Hezekiah's right-hand man. You could do, by your authority, whatever you wanted, and it was spoken by the king. Approved by the king. You were in authority. So to have the key of the house of David speaks of the authority to rule. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We've already heard the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Who has the key of authority? Jesus does. And so I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Jesus is the only one who has an open and shut case against mankind. When he opens, no one will shut. In other words, salvation has been opened out. And no one and no theology can take away the offer of salvation to every person. Jesus offered it. It didn't come from me. It didn't come from the Reformation movement. The offer of salvation came from Jesus Christ and was offered, His words, not mine, to every person who has ever lived. He has the keys. And so He opens out the opportunity to be saved, to be freed. And through simple faith in Jesus Christ, you know what? No one can shut you out. As He says to the church in Philadelphia, Behold, I've set before you an open door. It's the open door of salvation. Wide open, and anyone can walk through it. I've unlocked it, I've opened it up. However, He also shuts, and no one can open. And when He shuts the door on hell, it will be closed forever. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I know this keeps coming up. And I fully believe the Lord wants us to bear this burden today. We need to, as followers of Jesus Christ, Christians, please hear me, we need to bear the burden of hell. What do you mean? I mean, we need to recognize its reality. We need to know, we need to ache over the fact that we have friends and relatives who are going there as of right now. That should tear us up. Well, that's not very encouraging, Pastor. I don't want it to be. It shouldn't be. I mean, man, whatever it takes for us to wake up and start proclaiming Jesus in in powerful and real ways. To be like Rachel, who goes to college at Western and is sitting over here this morning aching because her roommate, among others, don't want to hear it. And it breaks her heart. That's exactly what it should be. 
The joy of the Lord is my strength. What do I need strength for? To continue to proclaim Jesus even to deaf ears. I don't like how that makes me feel, recognizing they don't believe and it breaks my heart. Let it break. Let it break. I know the reality of hell and the reality of eternity. But the reality of hell does not have to be anyone's reality if we choose Jesus. So simple. How about you this morning? Have you chosen Him? Are you among those who have said, He's my Lord. I love Him. I will do whatever He says. I want to follow Him. Some say, I don't want Him to control my life. Well, then you're going to hand the keys over to someone else. And there will be another who controls your life. Verse 23, still speaking of Eliakim, the picture, the portrait of Jesus, note this, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. For he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So that they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all jars. Now there's a word picture here. Imagine a peg in a wall and, and you know pots and pans and bowls and jars hanging on those pegs. Perhaps you have some of those in your kitchen. And that's the picture he's saying. Just a common household picture of a peg that holds things up. You can hang cups or whatever off. You can hang important things off of the peg. You know, like a baseball jersey. <laughs> or you can hang a little cup, a mug off a peg, whatever. It can hold anything is what he's saying. And for Eliakim, historically, this just meant his position was solid. This is a man Hezekiah can count on. He'll be like a peg in the wall. And you can hang your decisions on him, Hezekiah, because Eliakim, he's a good guy. You can trust him. He's solid. He's rock solid. Gang, we hang our hopes on Jesus. And he is solid. And he is secure. And there's nothing that's going to go wrong with that. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I hang my hopes on Jesus. Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved for you in heaven who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Yesterday, I was so excited. I got our our little packet of info for Israel. Those of you going on the trip, you should be getting them if you haven't yet. Open it up, and there are the tickets, and there are the reservations, and there are the plans, and I'm like, I ran into the bedroom, and I go, Cheryl, look, we're going to Israel! (laughs) Now I knew we were going to Israel two days ago. What was the difference? I had my reservation. It's it's for sure, you know, it's solid, barring you know nuclear holocaust. It's so looking good. I have my reservation. You have your reservation in heaven. That is your living hope through Jesus Christ. You can count on Him. You don't have to worry about Him. I, you know, I return to this concept often here because I still hear comments from Christians saying, "I'm just not sure if I'm saved." Do you have a reservation? Well, I don't know. Well, you better know. Well, how can I know? Ask Him. Trust Him. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. Trust Him. Don't trust yourself. Remember, don't trust yourself to get yourself to heaven. That's a mistake. You will always wonder if you're saved if you're looking at yourself. But if you look to Jesus, you know your salvation is secure. You have a place reserved. 
A living hope. We hang our hopes on Jesus. But verse 25, this is what gets confusing. In fact, scholars are divided as to who the peg is at the end of the prophecy. Even though we understand it's Eliakim up till now, but suddenly in verse 25, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. And it will even break off and fall, and the Lord hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Some think this now suddenly refers back to Shebna. Shebna breaking off as a peg and falling because Eliakim is like a peg in a firm place. He's immovable and he's certain. But it can't be Shebna. It's not Shebna. Because he's called the peg driven in a firm place. Just as he was called a peg driven in a firm place in verse 23. It's the same peg that's being talked about. Others will say, well, possibly, later in his position, Eliakim will also fail. And Hezekiah's hopes and those who have entrusted themselves to Eliakim's stewardship will fall off because he will break off because he took too much on himself. That's that's quite a load there in in verse 24. Not only the glory of his father's house, but offspring and issue and the least of vessels from bowls to all jars. He's holding everything. That's, That's quite a load. So perhaps Eliakim fails. Now think about this. It is one thing to bear the glory of your father's house. It is yet another thing to bear all the least of the vessels from bowls to all the jars. What are you talking about? They call that a Messiah complex. That you bear the joy and the glory of Jesus because you're one of His, saved by Him. But then also you're trying to hang on that peg all the least of the vessels. Friends, who you've tried to save but aren't listening, Rachel. Family, who you've tried to share about Jesus but aren't listening and you're hanging them on the peg and it's getting heavy. And it's getting heavier and heavier. Understand, we are all given a position, authority, a place in the kingdom. In addition to the glory, though, many of us begin to start carrying the weight of our own offspring. Our children are hanging on the peg. And and, and we're beginning to think or believe or fool ourselves into thinking that their salvation is dependent upon us. We've got to get them saved. You know what? They have the same choice you did. Anyone you share Jesus with has the same choice that you did. But here's the problem. Those you've discipled, maybe they're hanging on your peg. You know, Those who you've cared about are hanging on that peg and it's getting heavy. And after a while, you can't do it anymore and you just give way. And maybe that happened with, with uh, Eliakim. I mentioned that just to ask the question, how do you deal with other people's problems and sins and rejection of Jesus. How do you deal with that? How do any of maybe that's part of the problem? I don't want to think about hell because I don't want to have to share Jesus because if I share Jesus, then I have the responsibility for that person and it's just too much for me. How do you deal with it? I'll tell you how less than I do. I'll tell you how we did Wednesday night. We had a little issue come up. Everybody left, and Les and Donna are here, and we were talking about this situation and, and praying together. And uh when we were all done, because it's just one of those things, you know, comes up and you're like, oh, it's kind of heavy, got to deal with that, you pray about that. And when we were all done, Les put his hand on my shoulder and we bowed our heads and he said, now, Father, we release this to you. 
I would not be in ministry today if I hadn't learned that very simple principle, Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord. And the Amplified Bible adds, releasing the weight of it. Cast your burden upon the Lord, releasing the weight of it, and He will sustain you. And listen, He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. (coughs) Release it. All that stuff doesn't need to be, shouldn't be hanging on you. Our role is to speak the Gospel, not to save the world. That's the Spirit's job. I can't do that. I can't make people receive the truth. But I can speak it. And I can pray for them and be deep in intercession constantly for them and they can't do a thing about it. (laughs) Historically, we don't have the info to know what really happened to Eliakim. We know that his line would be cut off as all of those of the people of Judah when they were taken into Babylonian captivity. So some think maybe it's a nod toward that. I don't really care about what happened historically here. Gang, the prophetic meaning is the most important. Look back at verse 22 or 23. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. What does that mean? It means before Jesus could become a throne of glory to His Father's house, He had to be pegged. And it is a prophecy of the crucifixion. The word pegged in the Hebrew is so obvious. Yated, or yated which means nail. I'm going to drive him like a nail. Messiah is going to be driven like a nail in a firm place. But watch this. Look at verse 25 again. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. And it will even break off and fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken the phrase. Cut off means dead or killed. And this peg driven in a firm place speaks, yes, of Jesus on the cross, but the prophet says, note this, the load hanging on it will be cut off. What is the load? It's your sin and mine. Our sin is cut off. Our sin will be cut off and fall. Our sin will be killed dead by Jesus on the cross. What a remarkable prophecy we have before us. And the only reason we can hang all of our hopes on Him is because the Lord God hung our sin on Him. And because our sin was hung on Him, He took that sin away, He cuts it off at the cross, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Memorize that. Own it. 1 Corinthians 15.56 tells us the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the middle of the book of burdens or toward the end here does God deal with Shebna and Eliakim? Because everyone matters. Everyone matters. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.4 He desires all men to be saved. That does not sound like predestination to me, Les, does it to you? (laughs) He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Gang, this is a tale of two stewards. One steward, self-advancing, riding around on his chariots, carving his memorial, trying to make a name for himself, just like Satan. And the other, driven like a pig bearing all the hopes and glory of Israel, bearing the load of our sin on His shoulders at Calvary, where it was cut off once and for all, and that is, of course, Jesus. By the way, Eliakim's name is interesting to note. 
Eliakim's name, Shebna's name, you know, vigorous. Eliakim's name means God raises. God raises. And it becomes a complete prophecy here. Our sin broken at the cross. Jesus died at the cross. Jesus Himself cut off, but God raises. And gang, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 10, if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 